I think Berrigan is essential to us because with with good humor and long haul love and patience, he dedicated himself to his fellow human beings in a way that challenges what we settle for in the way of our worship, our politics, all of that kind of thing. He invites us to live the undivided life that he tried to take on. And I think that his voice is peculiarly needful in our radioactive days. Welcome to Can I Get a Witness, the podcast. This podcast is an audio companion to the book, Can I Get a Witness? 13 Peacemakers, Community Builders, and Agitators for Faith and Justice. I'm Shay Tuttle. In each episode of this podcast, I'll talk with one of our authors about the person they profiled for the book and about their writing process. Today, I'm talking with David Dark. David is the author of Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious, published by InterVarsity Press in 2016. He teaches at the Tennessee Prison for Women and Belmont University, where he is assistant professor of religion and the arts in the College of Theology. For our book, David wrote on Daniel Berrigan. Well, David, thank you so much for talking to me about Daniel Berrigan. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So glad to be doing it. Can you start by giving a sort of a brief summary of Daniel Berrigan's significance for people who might not already know his story. What what is um, what makes him show up in this book? Well, he is many things. He's a poet, a Jesuit priest, and something of a celebrity. And um, not my, my quick one is he was friends with Kurt Vonnegut, and Kurt Vonnegut famously said that Daniel Berrigan is Jesus as a poet, and if that's a heresy, make the most of it. He is this guy that those who follow his story, he is a real deal Christian. He really followed through in every way I can think of with taking Jesus and the prophets seriously. And he is something of a lightning rod figure in a way because he never really accepted the popular division between religion and politics. And he viewed that division as catastrophically horrible move. And he he talked about it. He wrote about the prophets. He lived according to the prophets. And most famously, and I know we'll get into this, he would trespass on government property in the name of the reign of God. And most did it many, many times. But his most famous instance of that is an action referred to as the Catonsville Nine action, because he wasn't alone, but he and his brother and others at the height of the Vietnam War broke into a government facility and burned draft files in the name of God, Jesus, righteousness. And um, 
it is something of a buried memory in American history because it's as if this one moment, which really calls so many things that Americans hold sacred into question, really changed things for a time. But I, I do think that that memory was repressed, and I'm interested in opening it up again. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So my first question was going was gonna to be about this sort of division or so-called division rather between the religious and the political you have this um this lovely couple of sentences where you say where do you put the poet priest who passed his years as a hospice volunteer a college professor a fugitive from the law an incarcerated medical assistant and a prophetic voice against american war making shall we decree him religious or political and i think you know still in so many ways it's not always easy to tell the difference between the religious and the political um and i know that's something that you think and talk a lot about. Why do you think that division, or maybe why do you think Berrigan thought that division is so dangerous? Well, because we're always, we're trying to organize our lives, and we end up trying to organize the lives of others. The claims of God's righteousness on the whole of human life are difficult and hard to keep straight in our desire to survive, to have wealth, to get what we need. And he understood that that it's understandable, this division. I've got my business over here. I've got my uh, entertainment. And then I've got church. And then I've got how I vote. You know, however it is, we want to do that. But he, he did view it as catastrophic because he understood that in the name of security, we will undertake great violence or fund the violence of others undertaken on our behalf. So he, he there's a sense in which, um, this might be helpful to put it this way, Wendell Berry has a line, the agrarian philosopher, poet Wendell Berry, says that there are no unsacred places, there are just sacred places and desecrated places. And if you believe something like that in your interaction with human beings, in the way that you devote your energies to neighbor and living a good life, that that has really strong, difficult, seemingly radical implications. And especially during the Vietnam War, when he was watching the church, as he understood it, largely keeping silent as the U.S. government was having its way with American lives and Vietnamese lives, he kind of planted a flag in a way. I'll mention quickly that when I speak to men of a, American men of a particular age, a draftable age going back to the late 60s, and I mention Daniel Berrigan, very often there will be a look of recognition and they'll say, oh my goodness, I forgot all about that guy, but I loved that he did that. And, and, it, and it's, it's so odd, but anyone who follows his story usually does develop some affection for him. But to take him seriously, like taking Jesus and the prophet seriously, means that you're going you're gonna to challenge the popular divisions. It seems to me that Berrigan believed that spirit knows no division and witness knows no division. And um, if we have an ear to hear, we'll, we'll follow him into what he wants to show us. Yeah, that's lovely. 
So early in your chapter, you tell a story from Berrigan's childhood about a moment in his fifth grade class when this nun behaves unkindly toward a student. Yes. <laughs> um, could you share that story and talk about sort of um, how it shaped Berrigan as he grew? Yes, he watched, and and I so hesitate to give the story too much energy because there's an awful lot of uh, caricatures of mean nuns and stuff but it but it did occur that he had a nun teacher who was bullying toward one of his peers and at one point kind of ground her heel her let's see like the heel of her shoe into the uh foot of one of his students one of his friends and they all saw it these little moments of intimidation occur in every area of life, but they saw it and they knew what happened and they told the superior it was denied and eventually parents were brought in and he watched this woman who was the bearer of not to be questioned authority essentially own up to her own loss of composure, her own tyranny, and apologized to the girl in front of the class, apologized to the class. And it was just this moment of um, seemingly arbitrary authority being exposed and being brought into the space of moral accountability. And so for the young Berrigan, that was kind of a big deal. It was a kind of, uh, he saw the man behind the curtain as it were, and he carried that into every area of life, that that which we um, view as inevitable or fate or just the way it is, he saw even when it's this is just the way it is in the name of God, church, authority, he knew that it could be, that the script could be flipped with care, that it kind of takes a, it takes a village to topple an authority. And he he took that with him all the way, whether it was in regard to the claims of the United States government or um, his Jesuit superiors who were sometimes encouraging him to abide and support and not question the status quo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. And we also... Uh... The chapter immediately following yours is about a nun, and it's a very different sort of portrayal. So at least we have, yeah, we don't only have the character, right? Yes, I believe um, it. Right. So could you talk some about um, Daniel's relationship with his brother, Philip? You, um, you share part of this letter in your chapter that Daniel wrote in the 40s to Philip, who was in the Air Force. Um, Daniel's trying to encourage Philip, who's struggling there. Um, and then, you know, fast forward later, they're protesting war together. So what did this relationship mean in Daniel's life? Yes, that letter was very helpful to me. And it, it came from a rather recent publication, The Letters of Daniel and Philip Berrigan. And it showed that at least at one point in time, when Philip was in the Air Force and questioning whether or not his allegiance to his superiors might pose, at least sometimes pose, a, a crisis of conscience in his insistence to um, his desire to be a follower of Jesus. In this letter, Daniel, a much younger Daniel, was explaining 
in a very general way, trying to comfort him, saying that your service to the United States government and your service to God are really one thing. There need not be a contradiction. You can be a good and faithful servant to the kingdom of God and still follow orders. I, I guess I'll note that one can, that I, if those orders are just and in the direction of human thriving, one can follow orders. But what was interesting was um, it, that letter showed how that they had evolved and that they did not become alleged radicals overnight. It was a process of discernment, of mutual sharpening, I guess we could say. And it would be decades before they slowly but surely decided that that their own government often posed something of a demonic stronghold that they needed to uh, attack is not the word I'm looking for, but bear witness, <laughs> bear witness against on behalf of the human form divine. And it's also the case that Philip, he did more jail time than uh, Daniel did. And there's a sense in which Philip was the the mentor to Daniel, especially when it came to direct. That's great. So um, I was struck reading your chapter um, again about, I was struck by the use of the word stagecraft. Mm. You were telling the story of Bergen Howardson traveling to Hanoi to receive some American prisoners of war who are being released by the Vietnamese government. Um, and sort of, at least the way I read it, it sounded like kind of at the last moment, the U.S. government kind of steps in and makes sure that they receive the credit. Is that sort of That's right. right. And maybe just as importantly as the credit, um, the, that they get the visual that, that this um, U.S. Air Force transport um, of the prisoners so that they can kind of claim this liberation <laughs> as opposed to letting peace activists claim it. And you used the word stagecraft, which I thought was just, it just sort of caught my attention. And it, it made me wonder if, um, if the implication there is that this experience contributed to Berrigan's own thinking about kind of the visual impact of an action, which, you know, thinking about burning draft files or something, that there's, a, there's an importance of the, um, of the performance of that, not, not to underplay that, but that that's actually something important. Does that... I don't know, I guess I'm just curious if you would reflect on that or if, yeah. you, if you think that he kind of learned that out of that experience. Yeah, he did. I mean, it, it was a clear coup for the peace movement to have negotiated the release of American prisoners, but it was a coup that the United States government understood was a threat to um, perceived authority, perceived legitimacy. And I think he was learning it like many people did in the 60s when they saw that if you bring in, whether it's the lunch counter sit-ins or any kind of nonviolent protest, and it certainly works its way toward today in Ferguson and Charlottesville, and if those who are claiming nonviolence surrender that perception to the authorities who have their authority because they are the ones who are supposedly maintaining order, Everything can be lost in a moment if one person goes off script and is no longer disciplined in terms of um, maintaining their composure 
and both the appearance and the reality of not being an aggressor. So he and Howard Zinn, they, they had their thing, but then they saw that if you remove cameras or if you can put a counter photo op that suggests that it was the State Department that led to the release of these prisoners, everything can change. We, I mean, we see it in presidential debates. We see it in um, any number of exchanges between, say, um, people trying to talk to senators on an elevator, trying to get them to vote a particular way. If you can get a, if you can get a senator to uh, shout down someone and no longer be the uh, symbol of reason and calm, that can you you can change sort of change the future right then and there. And I think he knew that on one level, but I think he saw that when it came to the burning of draft files, that they were going to have to um, be really, really careful the way they spoke of it and really careful in um, perception. I mean, I, I know that it's often said by political consultants that truth is perception. And it was recently noted by Alexander Nix of uh, Cambridge Analytica that it doesn't have to be true. It just has to be believed. And that that operates, um, you know, in the entertainment world and in the uh, alleged political world. But I think Berrigan, as much as anyone, understood that these divisions are illusory and that it's really one human barnyard all the time, that there are no lanes, ultimately. Yeah, yeah. I just I think it's fascinating because it feels I mean, it feels so right, but it also feels sort of counterintuitive. I think we mm -hmm. have these, these ideas that, you know, activism for the sake of what's right is, um, I don't know, that there has to be some kind of purity to that that doesn't care about, you know, what it looks like or something. And actually what it looks like matters so deeply that yes, it anyway, does. I just, I think it's, yeah, it's a, it's a powerful example of that. And I think powerful that he sort of learned it from, in that instance anyway, from the other side. I mean, from having that used against him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And he, yeah, that it's not, it need not be a um, superficial thing or a commitment to melodrama or something like that. Often show business, I, I want to say showing business, that it does come down to visuals who gets to control meaning or propose meaning in one sense or another. And if we um, if we lose that sense of the narrative and we let others frame the narrative, the framing of the narrative, we might say, is a really, really important thing and and tricky, figuring out how to maintain the narrative rather than getting distracted. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's great. So I'd like to, to um, move into um, hearing a little bit about Catonsville. So I was wondering if you could read the excerpt from your chapter that's about Daniel discerning whether to pursue this particular act. Um, and if there's any sort of setup for that um, excerpt as well, you could, you know, set that up and then share that. Okay, so Daniel was in close consultation with Philip over what a genuinely Christian, a genuinely morally serious response might be to the fact of the draft, to the fact of countless Vietnamese 
lives being lost in the name of American security, global dominance, all of that. And um, in the excerpt that I'm about to share, I'm going to note that they they were noting that their efforts to um, be a witness to God's kingdom was increasingly being rejected by their own superiors as well as the wider culture. So I'll start reading. The reality that prompted them to move, their own subjectivity, their experience, their witness, their own powers of perception when it came to what's true and needful, was viewed as inadmissible. This was indeed a showing of hands that would be played again and again, and Daniel would come to describe the stronger hand with a simple evangelical formula, Christ, gospel, sanity itself. How to be accountable and responsible to these three in the work of seeing and loving the sweet old world and those who inhabit it was the question ever before him. The seriousness of the question intensified when Philip traveled to Cornell with a proposal. In advance of the trial for his action in Baltimore a few days before, which also involved, um, in this case, the pouring of blood over draft files, he wanted to raid another draft board. Upon procuring the files and getting them outdoors, it would be fire this time, but it would again be, quote, a moral assault on purportedly sacrosanct territory. It was not at all clear to Daniel that he would be right to join the undertaking, but he assured Philip he would pray and meditate over the matter for 24 hours. An assurance came to him, quote, a certainty deeper than logic. Suddenly my hands and heart lifted and I knew. It was as if in choosing, I could now breathe deep and call my life my own. I didn't want to do it, but I could not do it. On May 17, 1968, following much prayer, they walked into a draft board in Catonsville, Maryland, with seven other activists and removed papers with the names of young men scheduled to be conscripted. Then they took the draft files outside and burned them with homemade napalm. This liturgy concocted according to the specifications of another a U.S. Army Special Forces manual. Some property, they argued, referring to the paperwork, has no right to exist. Apologizing for their fracture of what they could no longer abide as good order, and noting that they were no longer able to say, peace, peace, when there is no peace, they observed aloud that they thought it fitting to burn paper instead of children. Famous quote, we could not so help us God do otherwise. As the fire burned, they emphasized the reality that had prompted the, the action by reciting the Lord's Prayer. Thank you. So I'm struck in hearing this account. Um, it's so powerful. It's also so very theological. Um, this isn't action for the sake of action. It's not for media, even though the stagecraft matters, as we talked about, it's not even first about, you know, taking care of people. It's it's for the sort of underlying theological um, purpose, which may, you know, include some of those other things, but the theology is sort of what, what feels underneath all of it. 
And so activism, of course, can come from all sorts of motivations. <laughs> so what difference do you think it makes for this action to come from a theological place? I think of the Berrigans, I think of Daniel Berrigan in particular as a um, sort of a pioneer of human seriousness. And Berrigan for himself in that moment, the stakes aren't just um, we need to do something on behalf of our neighbors, the young men that are being drafted as well as the women, children, population of Vietnam. For him, it was the vindication of a tradition because the church itself, the body of Christ, can only be known to the extent that there is a witness to Jesus and the prophets, to God's kingdom. So by being explicitly theological in their appeal, they did believe that they were kind of keeping Christianity in America, alive as a viable communal witness, that if they were silent in a moment like that, if they didn't step into the breach, the, there, there is a community um, that gathers in the name of Jesus. But if that community that gathers in the name of Jesus did not challenge the idolatry of the United States government, the witness would not exist in that. Now, they weren't delusional thinking, we are the only ones doing this kind of thing. But they um, they did think that they were maintaining the continuum, the trajectory of the witness to the body of Christ that is the church, that they were kind of alone, if that makes sense, and that there was no witness against the demonic stronghold that was demanding human sacrifice at that point in time and that, of course, even now still is. I might mention, too, that some language that Berrigan refers to over and over again in his writing is he'll say something, this is something of a paraphrase, that in a world that is dismembering the human form, the infinitely valuable bearer of God's image that is every human being, the church is called to remember when the world is dismembering. And that work of remembrance, he would argue, was he could not do it on that day in, in May of 1968. Hmm. So you say that following Catonsville, Berrigan becomes very unpopular. <laughs> um, you say that he found that the more he grounded his explanations of the Catonsville action in scripture, the less sympathy he received from self-described Christians in America. Why do you think it worked and maybe still works <laughs> this way? Um, and what do you think that means about being a witness? Well, I think that we are often risk averse. I think especially when there's a, a saying, I think it's, can't recall if it's Upton Sinclair or Sinclair Lewis. Um, one of them said that it's hard to make someone see something when their paycheck depends upon them not seeing it. And I think that they are too barrigan. I mean, it's funny to, it's kind of mixing labels and phrases that we hear these days. But if evangelical refers to the gospel of God's kingdom and conservative refers to conserving the possibility of human thriving, very weirdly, Berrigan is then 
among the most conservative evangelical voices of our time. But that, of course, is very different from the um, Jesus as my sort of private ghost friend who changes my private life. Personal private relationship with Jesus is not a biblical concept at all, but it is the sort of most popular form. Ah, do I want to say that? I don't know. It's one of the more popular and toxic forms of that which passes for Christianity in our day. So I think many people who make a living speaking or claiming to speak on behalf of God kind of don't know what to do with Berrigan because Berrigan really believed it and really acted like it. And there's a sense in which if you start reading Berrigan or paying attention to what he did, there's sort of no going back. And again, that, that's where I do believe that he is something of a repressed memory because he answers the question of what a genuinely Christian politics might look like. And I, I hasten to add that it's not an exclusively Christian politics. I, I often think of you know, conscientious agnostics like Albert Camus when I think of Berrigan, because I think he is as close to Camus as he is to Bonhoeffer and people like that. So I, I think for young seminarians or for people who earn their living as pastors of churches and such, if you start quoting Berrigan or leaning heavily on his witness, it can, it might challenge one's job security because that bright red line between religion and politics is there for a reason. And it could cost you something if you um, were kind of to lean into the conflict where Berrigan lived. Right, right. So you say repressed memory, I mean, meaning we don't want to remember? Is that, I mean, we've sort of buried that because it's dangerous? Yeah, I mean, you can quote C.S. Lewis <laughs> fairly easily. You can maybe even quote Flannery O'Connor, or name any number of uh, folks who are sort of safe Christians because they're not challenging the status quo, but to really recall Berrigan or to even tell the story that we've recounted in this podcast is to immediately be faced with certain questions. I'll, I'll quickly note that uh, one of Berrigan's Erdman publications, I noticed that Eugene Peterson, who translated the message, provided a blurb for one of Berrigan's books. And when I met Eugene Peterson, I asked him, um, I said, wow, I bet you got a lot of grief for that because here's you, something of a mainstream Christian publishing success, blurbing a volume from Daniel Berrigan. Did you get a lot of heat for that? And Peterson looked at me and said, I never heard a peep from anybody on any of it. And that kind of didn't surprise me because I don't think that anyone who was reading Berrigan in those days and who noted, you know, a more famous person like Peterson being on there, that they, the folks who would give Peterson grief for endorsing Berrigan aren't going to be picking up a Berrigan book, generally speaking. And so I think that that's somewhat telling in that we kind of, we don't, buy books. I mean, I, I wish we did. I'd like to think that I do. I hope that I I read books that are going to insult me in some way, and they're going to challenge my uh, preconceptions. But it's all the, also the case that as 
Simon and Garfunkel tell us that we kind of hear what we want to hear and disregard the rest. And I think that's that's part of the reasoning behind Berrigan. Same thing when Berrigan died, as I mentioned in the piece, he was on the front page of the New York Times. But that was probably the first time in 20 or 30 years that he had appeared in the New York Times at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have a a line where you say, um, the myth of redeeming violence is a costly and well-funded faith more widespread than any other world religion. Um, oh my gosh. <laughs> you, you also talk about um, the unacknowledged religion of blind nationalism. And you can't read that without it feeling so uh, present in our kind of current narratives culturally. So I hesitate to ask a question like, what would Daniel Berrigan do? But maybe another way of saying that is, what do you think Berrigan's witness calls us into now in our kind of current moment? Yeah, I'll, I will up the ante and note that I've lately found it helpful just to be explicit and to be clear, to note that Christianity, properly understood, can't mix with white nationalism. And I think that there is an avoidance on the part of many predominantly white churches in America to address it as a form of antichrist. So I I do think that Daniel, I don't think he would say it at every opportunity, but the three words, white nationalist antichrist, Desmond Tutu understood that white supremacy in apartheid South Africa was a form of antichrist. And Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer were both willing to call the Fuhrer principle, where you put Hitler on the level of the divine logos as a form of antichrist. So I I believe that Berrigan, I I don't think he would be on television now. I don't think that he would be being sought out. I mean, he he simply wasn't sought out by media outlets because on the alleged divide between liberal and conservative, he was just never going to fit. Is he religious or is he political? He he didn't fit in it. There's a sense in which a genuinely righteous witness is never going to fit the prescribed label categories. But I think he would be clear now as he was then that white nationalism is a kind of demonic stronghold that the church is called to bear witness against. Hmm. So this possibly changes direction a little bit, but in multiple places in the chapter, you call Daniel Berrigan a poet, um, which I think after the majority of this conversation, that can feel like something different. What what do you mean by... um, Daniel Berrigan is a poet, and why is that important to understanding him? Well, I like to think that poetry is the work of recognition, that when nuance is lost often in other forms of human expression, poetry privileges nuance. My partner, Sarah Mason, has said that poetry memorializes nuance. And I think poetry is always a call to um, specificity when generalization is prevailing. And something like burning draft files, or as they did later, pouring blood on nuclear warheads, these are all calls to, to specificity. And he has many volumes of of poetry. And many of his volumes on the prophets place Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah 
poet and prophet is is not it's for Berrigan there's not a uh necessarily a meaningful distinction to be made between them and i i think that he was doing that poetic prophetic work in all of his exchanges and in all of his notebooks and his biblical commentaries poetry is uh i like to say oh, who am i quoting here i guess it was Ezra Pound who said that literature is news that stays news and i think Berrigan was trying to be a bearer of the good news of the sacredness of all human life the sacredness of creation the earth our resources that's actually a really poetic way non-poetic way to speak of land water all of this and i i think he is that if if prophet is a difficult word to put on people because we're afraid that it it gets too close to a kind of fundamentalist or a toxic understanding of the world i think we we can go with poet with berrigan and he never stopped trying to think poetically about um what was required of him so how do you think berrigan is a witness that we need today i think he's um well i'll mention quickly that I, this didn't show up early on. You know, he appeared in the film The Mission as a Jesuit with uh, Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons. He appeared in a um, Ben and Jerry's ad. He um, he loved the world and he loved the circus. He had a poster on his wall that was a E.E. Um, e. Cummings quote put on a uh, broadside made by Sister Coretta Kent, and the E.E. E. Cummings quote was, damn everything but the circus. And <laughs> I I think... That's amazing. That's, yeah, damn everything but the circus. And for him, as well as William Stringfellow, who appears in our volume, the circus was sort of a sign of the sacredness of human thriving, good humor, wit, color, all of that. And I think Berrigan is essential to us because with with good humor and long haul love and patience, he dedicated himself to his fellow human beings in a way that challenges what we settle for in the way of our worship, our politics, all of that kind of thing. He invites us to live the undivided life that he tried to take on. And I think that his voice is peculiarly needful in our radioactive days. How do you think you've been changed by spending so much time with Daniel Berrigan? I do do what would Berrigan make of this. Would Berrigan sit quietly while that mind-numbing racist or bigoted generalization is being voiced in my presence. I won't answer this question, but I will say that it's a question that I put in front of myself and my students a lot lately, and it's this. Are we responsible for the lies we allow other people, other adults, to voice in our presence unchallenged? And I think Berrigan would say that we are responsible. It doesn't mean that at every moment we have to take on strangers, 
who say horrible things in the line of a DMV or something like that. But I think Berrigan tells us that we are responsible. I think, too, of uh, Tolstoy once said of a character, his whole life long, this is a paraphrase, his whole life long he found out was what was expected and he did what was expected successfully. What he never asked himself was whether or not what was expected was just or true or good. And for me, having, oh goodness, let's see, I'm 49 and I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm realizing that I've had Berrigan in my head for probably almost 30 years. And I think he has made me think harder about what a Christianity worthy of adults looks like. And he's made it harder for me when somebody speaks of Christianity as if they're describing something simple and straightforward. My inner Daniel Berrigan wants to speak up and say, I know that's what passes for Christianity, but I don't think that you're describing Christianity in the deepest sense. So he's been kind of a, a haunting uh, conscience voice within me, but he also gives me a lot of courage. He's been a very encouraging presence for me because I know that I'm that which confronts me is not different from what confronted him and others have been here before and I guess that would be the case for everybody in this volume they help us to see what a witness toward God's righteousness might look like in 2019 given all of the difficult decisions but the determined energy that they brought to their context. David, it's been so good to talk to you. Such a rich conversation, and I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate um, your work on this and these fantastic questions. Can I Get a Witness? The podcast is a production of the Project on Lived Theology at the University of Virginia, a research initiative whose mission is to study the social consequences of theological ideas for the sake of a more just and compassionate world. To learn more about lived theology, visit livedtheology.org or find us on social media. This podcast is produced, edited, and engineered by Jessica Seibert and written, edited, and hosted by me, Shay Tuttle. Original music is by Drew Wilson. Special thanks to project director Charles Marsh. The book, Can I Get a Witness? 13 Peacemakers, Community Builders, and Agitators for Faith and Justice is edited by Charles Marsh, Shay Tuttle, and Daniel P. Rhodes. It's published by Urban's Publishing Company and is available now. Thank you for listening to Can I Get a Witness? The podcast. <laughs>